This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. An official with the National Transportation Safety Board called the East Palestine train derailment 100% preventable. And a ProPublica investigation examines a Norfolk Southern policy that allows railroad officials to order crews to ignore safety alerts. On today's program, we're going to take a closer look at what happened in East Palestine, the city of Cincinnati's proposal to sell a city-owned railway to Norfolk Southern, and how local first responders prepare for train derailments and the release of toxic chemicals. Joining me now to talk more about the NTSB's preliminary report into the derailment and the ProPublica investigation into Norfolk Southern safety policies are USA Today Network Ohio Bureau political reporter Haley B. Miller. Welcome back, Haley. Good to be here. And ProPublica independent investigative reporter Dan Schwartz. Thanks for being here, Dan. Hi, thanks for having me. If you have questions or comments, give us a call at 513-419-7100 or email talk at wvxu.org. Haley, tell us more about the findings of this preliminary investigation by the National Transportation Safety Board. I believe it was the NTSB chair who was quoted as saying this was 100% preventable. Yeah, so the top line of the report that they released last week, which is just preliminary, they're going to keep investigating this, um, they found that a wheel bearing on the train had been overheating when it got to East Palestine, and when they got, the crew members got an alert by um, a detector along the railroad at that point that it was um, overheated beyond the threshold that the company permits for their wheel bearings and so the crew tried to slow down and um went off the tracks and at that point the uh, train's emergency brakes were triggered so we um ntsb said that the wheel bearing at the time of the derailment was 250 to 253 degrees warmer than ambient temperature uh, which is considered a critical uh, level by the by Norfolk Southern. Mm. And this hot bearing detector issued an alarm telling the crew to, to slow down and stop to inspect the hot axle. Can you talk about what the report found in terms of what was happening leading up to this? So the train passed two other um, detectors along the railroad starting about 30 miles out from East Palestine, And the readings on those detectors show that this wheel bearing was starting to heat up over the course of that 30-mile period. But railroads set their own thresholds for what's considered a critical temperature in an instance like this. And the first two detectors did not, um, the temperatures that were detected the first two times were not considered critical by the company. I forget what the exact numbers were. I think the second one was somewhere around 100 degrees over. So the crew was not alerted. Those times the crew did not have to stop and inspect anything, uh, did not go off until that third one. And at that point, they they did try to stop and inspect it. Mm. And as you mentioned, the board's investigations into this are, are ongoing, right? Yeah. So they've completed their on-site work in East Palestine, although... The NTSB chair said last week that they plan to conduct an investigative field hearing in the village at some point this spring, but they'll continue to look into this. I mean, these things take months and months to sort through, particularly in uh, an incident of this magnitude. Yeah. 
Dan, I want to talk about the work that you and a colleague did for ProPublica. Your investigation found Norfolk Southern allows a monitoring team to instruct crews to ignore alerts from train track sensors. Tell us more about what you all found. Yeah, that's correct. We um, we reviewed Norfolk Southern's policies, and, and we learned they do have a policy like that in place. Um, and uh, it states that, uh, yep, crews in a train can ignore um, alerts coming from these trackside detectors, these sensors, when, uh, according to the policy, quote, information is available coming, confirming it is safe to proceed. Um, we weren't able to get any clarification from Norfolk Southern. We did ask um, about what this policy means, particularly that last ambiguous clause there. Um, but uh, but it, it's it's generally stated pretty plainly there. The company has a, what's called a wayside detection help desk, which is separate than um, what all railroads have, uh, dispatchers. It's a, it's a separate unit. And these people, we believe they're a type of analyst, um, they receive information from these trackside sensors. Um, and according to this policy, they can determine when to share information with um, crews and and uh, they can also determine, um, uh, they can instruct those crews to disregard an alert um, and continue on mm. uh, to, the next, to the next detector. So this language in the policy, when information is available confirming it is safe to proceed, they, they didn't give you any clarification about what that meant or what kind of information they're talking about? They didn't. It's very ambiguous. Um, and we, we talked to um, a lot of people uh, um, not Norfolk Southern officials, but just um, uh, people in the industry and employees and stuff to try to understand a little bit more that way. And and uh, um, people in the industry did say they can see how how this policy um, could be could be a good thing. Um, you know, shunting this information to the wayside help desk. Um, sorry, to the to, yeah to the wayside help desk can uh, can kind of free up dispatchers who are doing a million things, usually be dispatchers that would make those calls. But um, people also said, um, particularly in light of that ambiguous language, they could see how this policy could be abused to ignore dangerous conditions. Hmm. Your investigation um, also found North Norfolk Southern disregarded a similar problem on a different train in October. Can you explain what happened there? We did. Yeah, that was a train... Um, and uh, tra- derailed in Sandusky, Ohio, uh, in October just of last year. And Sandusky's just west um, uh, there of East Palestine by about two hours. Uh, that was a train. It was also a hazmat train, um, hazardous materials train. It was carrying um, uh, molten paraffin wax. Uh, and the, true, the crew uh, received a, a communication from dispatch, separate from the help desk, telling them... Um, about four miles before to rail to stop because they were getting a reading that one of their wheels uh, on their engine was hot. So the crew stopped. Um, they inspected the wheel. Uh, they couldn't determine what was making it heat up. So Norfolk Southern sent out a uh, mechanic. The mechanic couldn't figure it out. The wheel was uh, at that point only smoking very lightly. Um, and uh, we have indications that the crew wanted to um, uh, not take the train on any further. They wanted to separate that engine with the smoking wheel from the train um, and then reassemble the train and continue onward. They felt that uh, we believe that the, the, it was unsafe to proceed. But Norfolk Southern instead ordered them to continue on without removing the suspect engine. And then four miles later, 
the train derailed, um, dumping thousands of gallons of molten wax onto what is normally a very busy street. So a, a near miss there. Mm. So at the risk of, of asking a very obvious question, what's the motivation of Norfolk Southern not to follow the recommendations of its own employees to, to you know, get that smoking car off the train? Well, um, we, yeah, we did, we did seek uh, a comment from Norfolk Southern. They didn't provide us any, but um, what we've been learning, we've been investigating uh, the railroad industry for more than a year now. Um, and what's in the news a lot now is uh, this uh, new um, management philosophy that all the class ones, all seven of the class one uh, railroads, class ones are the biggest railroads in the country that operate in the country. They are, they're adhering to this thing called precision scheduled railroading. And it's this management philosophy. I mean, um, this might cause a little heartburn in class one executives. It's probably a little bit of an oversimplification, but but fundamentally it's um, they, they reduce overhead dramatically. Um, and oftentimes that has an impact on safety. Um, and then in, in return, they get um, dramatic uh, uh, returns uh, for their investors. And, and this, this uh, seems to, from early indications, be an outgrowth of, of PSR, as it's called, Precision Scheduled Railroading. And by reducing overhead, that means fewer employees on, on the trains? Is that the big way they do it? Well, they've had um, uh, two-person crews, engineer and conductor on trains for a while now. There is a bid um, um, among the class ones, the railroad industry, to reduce that to a one-person crew. But what they're doing a lot, um, and we're still looking into a lot of the impacts of PSR, but they're, um, they are reducing their workforce dramatically. Um, a lot of that's coming from mechanics. So there's a lot of deferred maintenance in the railroad industry. And, and these, both, uh, both East Palestine, um, as well as Sandusky could could be um, results of uh, you know maintenance being deferred, but in about uh, about since 2015 they've uh, they've laid off uh, almost 30 percent of their workforce, all the class ones, and that's about I think uh, 25,000 employees um, across the board. So that's you know workforce is a is a major place they can they can cut expenses. Mm. Do other railroad companies have policies like this this Norfolk Southern policy that you and your colleague? dug into we'd we'd love to know the answer to that um we asked all the class ones for this story that we published recently uh, if they have similar policies only two gave straight answers that was csx and burlington northern santa fe they said um unequivocally they do not have those policies canadian national um they're a canadian company but they also operate in the u.s they responded as well but their their, uh their comment was a little wishy-washy they were saying um that uh no one can instruct a crew to continue traveling when they receive an alert, quote, requiring them to stop. Um, we asked for a little clarification. We weren't able to get it. And then Union Pacific, Canadian Pacific, and Kansas City Southern, we also asked them, but they ignored our request, which kind of makes you wonder, um, do they have a policy similar to Norfolk Southern? Mm. Yeah. Haley, um, I know you had a story about what the Norfolk Southern CEO is is saying uh, about this derailment and what the company will do. What is he saying the company will do for the for the community of East Palestine for the residents there? He has said repeatedly that you know they are committed to staying there until this is cleaned up and remediated. And it's important to note. Now, I mean, he was saying this um, early on, but now under an EPA order, they have to, um, you know, that's another layer of accountability that 
um, the federal government inserted into the equation. But um, beyond that, you know, they've CEO has said that they've been providing financial assistance to people in the community who need it. Um, I saw something recently that they donated to um, a local school and uh, gave the, I believe, reimbursed the fire department um, for some of the money spent on the emergency response. So they're very much trying to save face and trying to, you know, show this community that, you know, they're willing to stick around. Another thing they're doing, um, one of their railroad workers already works in East Palestine, apparently. And so that person has been designated as a community liaison for the next year uh, to report to the CEO's office about concerns that people have. I know in your reporting, he declared the air and water safe. Talk to us about what evidence there is to back that up. So the EPA and Ohio EPA have done testing of the air since that giant plume went up into the air from the vinyl chloride. They've said that the air is back to normal levels, um, you know, nothing hazardous in the air, which is what allowed people who had evacuated to return to the area. They've tested the village's municipal water system and have said that that is safe to drink. Um, They're in the process of testing some private wells for folks that aren't using the municipal water. And a lot of those results are still pending. We've gotten some early results back that um, appear to show that the private wells are okay for the most part. There was one that had um, some issues unrelated to the derailment. Um, according to DeWine's office, they have been cleaning their well in a certain way that was um, contaminating their water supply. So the test results at this point are encouraging, but I think People still have a lot of questions about, you know, what is or is not in their water supply. There's been some discussion about whether the EPA should be testing for things like dioxins, kind of going beyond what was on the train itself. You mentioned payments to residents. I understand the the company's given a total of $5.6 million to residents. What does that amount to per person? Do you know? I don't know for sure. At some point, I thought I saw that um, they were able to get these like $1,000 relief checks, essentially. There are about 4,700 people in the community. Um, again, some of these payments are kind of at-large donations to, you know, things like the school and other programs. But, you know, some of this is um, individual payments to people who were who are in the area and needed to, you know, stay in a hotel for a little while who are still, you know, dealing with the aftermath of this. Sure. And I know a USA Today network analysis found Norfolk Southern has among the highest accident rates nationally and highest derailment rates in Ohio. What did the CEO have to say about that? Not a whole lot. Um, you know, he said we're constantly trying to reevaluate our safety protocols and, you know, safety is a big priority for us, but there's clearly something missing there, you know, something contributing to the fact that they have one of the highest derailment rates in the country. So, you know, to what extent this 
incidents for more change from the company remains to be seen. But but yeah, he did not have a whole lot to say about that to offer any sort of explanation or defense of their record. Hmm. I want to ask you both this. Dan, you mentioned that you and your colleague have been investigating the railroads for for many, many months now. Can you give us any idea what you'll be digging into or looking for next uh, without without giving away too much? I know reporters don't like to tip their hands too much. <laughs> That's right. Well, we're, we're uh, generally curious um, in, in how uh, this uh, management philosophy, precision schedule, railroading, how it's impacting the railroads. Um, and uh, so we'll be looking at a, a number of things, including train lengths, uh, you know, how employees are treated, um, uh, those kinds of things. And, and we'll be having uh, our next story, which uh, which will be a big uh, um, look at a derailment uh, elsewhere in the country uh, coming out soon. Um, and we'll uh, once we start publishing that, we'll, we'll be ready to say more about uh, the larger project. Okay. Fair enough. And Haley, how about you? What will you and the the USA Today, Today Network Ohio Bureau be be looking at and watching for in, in East Palestine in the weeks and months to come? Well, I think there are still so many questions about, you know, what contributed to this. Obviously, the NTSB's final investigative findings will be incredibly important. Um, you know, there are also questions about how this is going to affect the groundwater and the community in the months and years to come. We know groundwater pollution takes a little bit longer to percolate. It's maybe not something that'll be detected right away. So that'll be important. And then, you know, seeing if health concerns in the community persist and, you know, how that continues to affect their day to day. And state lawmakers plan to have some some hearings on this this week, right? Yep, starting tomorrow. It's unclear, you know, they're not going to be able to do a whole lot since railroads are regulated by the federal government largely. Mm -hmm. They have some ideas of um, things they maybe could do dealing with tort law or um, the Senate President Matt Huffman suggested maybe putting some money in the budget to help people in the community. So it sounds like they want to do what they can and we'll see what that shakes out to be. Okay. Well, I've been talking with USA Today Network, Ohio Bureau political reporter Haley B. Miller, and ProPublica independent investigative reporter Dan Schwartz. Thank you both so much for your time today. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you. Up next, we'll discuss the city's proposed sale of Cincinnati Southern Railway to Norfolk Southern. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. Just 10 weeks and four days after Cincinnati Mayor Aftab Purval announced the city's proposed sale of Cincinnati Southern Railway to Norfolk Southern, the fiery train derailment in East Palestine happened. The Cincinnati Southern Railway Board remains committed to the proposed sale. So where do Cincinnati City Council members stand? Joining me in this recorded interview to discuss the sale and what questions she'd like Norfolk Southern to answer is Cincinnati City Council member Liz Keating. Welcome, Council Member Keating. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. I want to start with the fact that you were one of just two council members who asked a Norfolk Southern representative questions about the derailment during a council committee meeting earlier this month. Tell us the questions that you raised and, and whether you were satisfied with the answers you got. Yeah, so my my biggest concern here is given the tragedy in East Palestine is knowing that the city is now entering into a sale agreement with a very risky partner um, and risky from many different aspects. Um, with this situation, now with their attention towards the situation, um, you know, there could be 
a huge financial consequence coming out of this as well. Are do they still consider the the purchase of the CSR a priority? Do they have the funds, knowing that they are going to have um, a huge financial um, obligation coming out of that accident? Do they have the funds to purchase this railroad? And is the city's time and, and money spent to get ready for this sale going to be lost in the process? Also knowing that we are going to have a strong partner who's going to be operating our railroad um, if we if we give up the ownership of it to Norfolk Southern. Mm. And, you and um, oh, oh, from a from a standpoint of, of how they answer that question. So Norfolk Southern gave the city about 20 million dollars to cover all costs from our attorney fees um, to the third parties who did the appraisals on the railroad um, and, and cover all the time and capacity spent by the board to our law department, um, everybody to do their due diligence to get prepared for this sale. So from that standpoint, the city, if this sale falls through, the city's really not going to lose anything. Mm, okay. Well, and when you refer to Norfolk Southern as a very risky partner, you've talked about some of the financial risks. Are there, are there other ways in which you consider the railroad a risky partner? Well, I, it, the financial risk to the city, I think, it is a very important one. Um, just watching out for taxpayer dollars and resources given to this um, from the standpoint of is this still a priority? You know, their leadership um, is and should be focused on East Palestine right now. Are, are they going to be able to put their leadership in a position to have the capacity to focus on the sale and see it through so that the city, again, doesn't waste all this time, money and resources um, to get the sale done. And then also, you know, what what is coming out of this situation? I think once we get more and more reports coming out as to why this happened, how it happened, and how we can prevent it in the future, I think we'll better understand um, that risk standpoint of having them as owners of the CSR. What authority or power does council really have in all this? I mean, when it comes to the sale, this is ultimately going to be decided by voters and require a state law change. What what kind of power do you feel like you have as a council member? You know, council really doesn't have any power whatsoever in this. Um, we do put it on the ballot in November, but we are legally required to put that on the ballot. Um, so we we don't have a say, but what the most important thing we can do is we have a platform, we have a voice. Um, we have a a public seat to be able to ask these questions. Um, and so it's important for us to continue to ask questions, to um, press on our concerns and the concerns that we hear from the community to make sure that the community, the voters who will be making this decision in November, have all that information and feel like they have full transparency to be able to make the right decision in November. At the end of the day, it's the voters' decision and council's best and most important role is to make sure they have all the information they need um, to be able to make that decision in November. And that platform and that education, those are certainly important, but is it frustrating that you don't have more direct authority over all this? Um, I, I'd say yes and no. Um, yes, it would. It, it's frustrating because of this tragedy um, and not having the ability to do anything. Um, obviously, we are preempted by federal government and rights around safety regulations and control of, of railroad safety. Um, and it, it would be amazing for us to be able to step up and, and make decisions and be able to to feel like we are, um, you know, helping and in addition to creating safety measures to protect our community. Um, at the same time, we have experts um, who have been in charge of this for a really, really long time, and that's for a purpose. 
Um, having the CSR board as a separate entity overlooking this um, takes a lot of the politics out of this, um, which is always a good thing. We've got um, phenomenal leaders who have the city um, as their priority making these decisions, who have done a ton of due diligence over the course of well over a year as they started off as unleased negotiations and moving on to a possible purchase um, and sale agreement. So I, I think it's it's a good thing. And that's why we set these boards up um, to create a buffer. Um, at, that's how we protect the taxpayers. And that's how we protect the community assets. Mm. You've talked about some of the uh, concerns you have over financial risks with this and, and some of the other ways in which, as you described at Norfolk Southern, you consider a very risky partner. Does what happened in East Palestine and just the environmental you know, disaster that that community is still dealing with, does that give you personally any second thoughts about whether the Cincinnati Southern Railway should be sold to Norfolk Southern? You know, at the end of the day, we are in an agreement um, with Norfolk Southern through 2051. Um, so that doesn't change anything um, because we are, you know, talking about a sale rather than continuing the lease. Um, it does feel like it should be different, but at the same time, they are a partner for for many, many years after this. Um, they are the only user of our railroad. So we can't go out and, re- and really look for a third party. No one else is on this. No one else is connected to this. Um, and then if you look at the way this is set up, you know, Norfolk Southern has other north-south rail lines. Um, this isn't the only one. Um, so it, it's valuable to the, them, but it, at the end of the day, how valuable is it to them? And we have all of our eggs in one basket with, you know, expecting to have a good, strong um, lease agreement with one user every single year in perpetuity. So looking at, at selling that and being able to take that $1.6 billion and diversify our investments, I think is a good thing for the financial health of our, of our city and those taxpayer dollars. Um, so I think it's it's okay to look at it that way, knowing that we are in this with this partner through 2051. If we weren't in that and there were other opportunities to work with other operators of, of rail, I think that would be a different conversation. But because Norfolk Southern is the only user, they are our only partner, and we're in this through 2051, I think that that changes our ability to think in that way. And I just I want to make sure listeners understand. So Norfolk Southern has this lease until 2026 with a right to renew it for 25 years if it chooses to. Right. So, I mean, I know hindsight's always 2020, but was this a bad idea to get into this long term arrangement with one operator like this without being able to diversify in, in any way? Well, um, I, I I don't know. Um, I haven't really thought of it in that regard because the way rail really works right now is there's not um, there's the way our CSR is built. It's not connected to any other railways that are are used by other operators. Mm. So in order to to build out, I mean, when when um, the city built this a long time ago, I may be thinking of it other ways like that. But I think um, the best thing that we can do with the situation that we're in is look at ways that we can diversify that investment. Because right now, hoping that we have a user that wants to continue to lease from us 2051 and beyond, um, I think is a, is another risk um, that we may or may not want to take. And, and there not really isn't that opportunity for other user or other rail users to come in um, and start using the line. Hmm. So as a council member, what are you going to be watching for with this whole situation moving forward? 
I think that my biggest concern from the very beginning is this announcement was kind of sprung on everybody um, and, and there were a ton of questions and there weren't a lot of answers right away. Um, so I think the, it, again, as I, as I was saying earlier, our job is to ask a ton of questions. You know, when Norfolk Southern comes in front of council, we should be asking a lot of questions and all nine of us should be asking questions and we should make it go on as, as long as we need to so that we can get all of the questions that are coming from the public and those concerns um, answered. You know, some of my biggest concerns, I think they did do a good job. Our city law department and Norfolk Southern responding to that. And that kind of um, calmed some of my nerves over this. You know, they are still committed to this sale. They are in this lease agreement. They really have no backing out at all. They have to, they are they are in it for the $1.6 billion unless the voters decide against it. Um, so the risk to the city from that standpoint um, really isn't as, as strong as I thought it was. So I think I, I think being able to to go back and, and ask all these questions and continue to ask questions and continue to pass information out to the public so that there is that sense of confidence that they are fully informed um, and they have all the knowledge and education they need to make an informed decision in November. Well, I've been talking with Cincinnati City Council member Liz Keating. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Up next, we'll discuss how local first responders prepare for train derailments and the release of toxic chemicals. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. Ever since the East Palestine train derailment happened February 3rd, local residents have questioned what would happen if a disaster like that were to happen here. Hamilton County's Local Emergency Planning Committee is responsible for planning how to handle the release of hazardous materials, whether that happens while the materials are being transported or because of a malfunction at a local storage facility. Joining me now to discuss how local responders prepare for disasters involving hazardous materials is the Hamilton County Emergency Management and Homeland Security Agency, Local Emergency Planning Committee Coordinator, Doug Witzkin. Welcome, Doug. Thank you for having me. Glad you're here. You can join the conversation by calling 513-419-7100 or emailing talk at wvxu.org. Doug, tell us about Hamilton County's hazardous materials response plan. It sounds like that's what would kick in if we had a train derailment around here like like the one that happened in East Palestine. Is that right? Yes, that's entirely correct. So Hamilton County Emergency Management Agency develops and maintains an emergency operations plan for Hamilton County. And our hazardous materials response plan is part of many scenarios that are covered by our county emergency operations plan. The hazardous materials response plan basically documents that we have resources in place, we have organizations and agencies ready to respond, and we have plans for managing and recovering from hazardous material spill or release. And that kind of planning is important, obviously, for a lot of reasons. Um, The EPA says Ohio is sixth in the nation when it comes to um, the number of accidents in facilities handling hazardous chemicals. That's data from 2004 to 2020. So there's plenty to to pay attention to. Tell us a little bit more about what this response plan includes. What kind of things you all are looking at? So the emergency operations plan is organized by emergency support functions. So the plan identifies all of the critical functions that have to occur in the county's response to uh, management of and recovery from a hazardous material spill. So when you read through the plan, you can 
read about all of the different partner agencies and organizations that are going to have to come together. It specifies what the roles of each of those agencies or organizations will be. And then it talks about how we will work together and coordinate our efforts at our regional operations center here in Hamilton County. And that's a whole lot of organizations who are who are keyed into that, right? How many different right. organizations and agencies are you all talking about? We're talking about dozens. Mm. So when you look at all the partner agencies that the uh, County Emergency Management Agency works with day in and day out, there's a lot of unique uh, abilities and resources that those agencies can bring to us in time of need. And so one of the things that's so important is just to manage efficiently all those agencies coming together and coordinating their efforts. And that's one of the things that's so important about our county's emergency operations plan. We need to have everyone have a clear idea of what their role is going to be in managing the emergency. Yeah. How often does the plan get updated? I imagine there are a lot of moving parts to pay attention to and a lot of things that can change in terms of the types of hazardous materials that are being transported, how they're being transported. How often do you all update that? So the official update interval for the county's emergency operations plan is four to five years. The Hamilton County hazardous materials portion of the plan is updated annually. We have to uh, submit that to the state of Ohio for review and approval once a year. Okay, gotcha. And as I mentioned, you're also aware of where hazardous chemicals and materials are stored locally, right? Talk about how that kind of fits into your planning. Okay, so one of the important roles of the Local Emergency Planning Committee, or LEPC, which is part of the EMA, is that we have to manage the chemical inventory reporting program. So federal and state legislation passed back in the 1980s requires that companies that have certain thresholds, amounts of chemicals, have to report those inventories annually to the LEPC. So what we do is manage that information. We keep records of it. But most importantly, we do planning with it. So we will actually run worst-case release scenarios from all the different facilities that store, manufacture, or use chemicals in the county. And then by looking at the results of those worst-case release scenarios, gives us a pretty good idea of where our most significant hazards are in the county. And then, of course, more importantly, is we can plan for what our actions would be to protect the public and to manage the incident during time of emergency. Mm. That's going to be really complicated work because I would imagine different materials would create different problems if they were to be released. I mean, you're looking Correct. at uh, what what all the, are the all the different factors you have to look at with that. So I think the most important thing we determine when we look at a chemical hazard is, does it present a toxic inhalation hazard? And what that means is the chemical would form a cloud or a plume that would potentially travel downwind and endanger the public. And so the toxic inhalation hazards are the ones that give us the most concern because that's when we start talking about getting the public to shelter in place or having the public evacuate uh, in some scenarios. Mm. So those are the decisions we have to go through in time of release. Gotcha. You, I understand you had a recent tabletop exercise for a train derailment like what happened in East Palestine. Correct. Was your response in that exercise any different from what occurred in East Palestine as far as you can tell? I mean, I, I don't, I'm not asking you to second guess other first responders, but are, are the responses – would, would they be pretty similar here as, in terms of what happened there? Yeah, I think the scenario that we chose last year when we did our train derailment fire explosion scenario is very similar to what happened in East Palestine. Although ours involved the explosion of a single rail car uh, and a leak of you know three rail cars uh, before the fire occurred, theirs in East Palestine was a little bit larger scale. 
Um, but it's remarkably similar as far as, you know, how the emergency developed, the fact that you had to shelter the public in place initially, then we had to evacuate them. But I think what's really similar is just the magnitude that an incident like this takes on and what it requires of the resources at a local and even state level in, in the case of these emergencies. And uh, we had some very valuable training last year when we did that. And it gave all of our partner agencies and organizations an opportunity to come together and talk about the roles that we would play. So we are actually expanding on that exercise and taking it in the next 12-hour period this year. So we weren't done with it at the end of last year. We are going to continue again and just talk about, okay, we've managed the first 12 hours. The fire is out now what do we do to continue to recover from this? Mm. So it, it's great training for all of us and great practice. Yeah. Well, and as much as you never want some, nobody ever wants something like that to happen in real life, are, are there things that your organization can learn or that you are learning from what's happening in East Palestine right now? Yeah, I think it's incumbent on us to look at all the real world emergencies that do occur and look at how the response took place what issues that were there, positive and negative, uh, the lessons learned that come out of it, and then take a look at our plans and our procedures and see if that we can improve them. So we all need to learn from uh, each other's incidents, uh, both good and bad. Yeah. How much do you communicate in the role that you have now and, and coordinate with neighboring counties and communities? And I ask because I would imagine these kind of emer- these kinds of emergencies don't always respect county lines, state lines. I mean, I know there's a lot of concern about in, in, among Pennsylvania residents about what's happened in East Palestine. How much coordination and communication happens in that regard? Well, there's a great deal of coordination in our region amongst emergency management agencies. And I know our public safety agencies that are along county lines. They also coordinate their efforts and they make mutual responses together. Uh, There's a a real emphasis on that in public safety and emergency management. And I'm very confident and, you know, we learn it from special events like Riverfest where we have Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana working together. We have very strong relationships and I'm very confident if we had an incident that spilled over county lines and state lines that we'll be able to successfully manage that just because of how often we do work together already. Mm -hmm. If, if something terrible does happen and you need to notify the public that it's happened and what's to, what, what the public should do, talk about how you get the word out. How does that system work? So we have in Hamilton County a system called Alert Hamilton County. The city of Cincinnati also has an emergency alerting system based on the same uh, system that we have called Cincy Alerts. So both the city and the county, we work very hard to get people to voluntarily register to receive alerts in time of emergency. However, the county EMA also has access to a federal government system that allows us to send out wireless emergency alerts and some other types of alerts. But a wireless emergency alert is our primary tool of reaching the public if there's a life or death emergency. Most people are familiar with an AMBER alert, which is a type of wireless emergency alert. Uh, What we would be using is one that's for time of an imminent threat. So we would get the word out to the public that they need to either shelter in place or evacuate. And the way we could do that is to draw an image on a map and everyone inside that circle or rectangle or whatever shape we draw, every mobile device in that area is going to get a pop-up window on their lock screen, a loud alert tone, and it'll give them the instruction to either shelter in place or evacuate 
And then, of course, we follow that up with additional information through media partners, through social media, through press releases, through uh, emails and text messages to our registered users. So we have a lot of ways of getting the word out to the public. But in life or death situations, that wireless emergency alert is our number one tool. Yeah. And do you have any feel for what your um, penetration is with that? I mean, I think, you know, just about everybody I know has a, a wireless or cell phone these days, but you've got all these media partners that you work with too. How how many people do you feel like you can confidently really reach individually with that system? Well, when you also look at the registered users and we also have the ability to dial every landline in the county and, of course, reach every mobile device with the wireless emergency alert and social media, I feel like we would have very good coverage. Would we reach everybody? Probably not. But I think I think we could say with confidence that the majority of the people affected would definitely get the word from one of those uh, means of communication. Mm. Let's talk about how many freight railroads operate in Hamilton County and what some of the most common hazardous cargo is that, that, that they carry. Can you tell, tell us about that? We sure can. We recently commissioned a commodity flow study, or I should say a hazardous materials commodity flow study for our county. And in uh, collaboration with a consultant, we've been able to generate data on the chemicals that move through our county, through pipeline, through barge, through rail, and on our roadways. And when you analyze both our highway and our rail traffic, the most common hazardous materials moving through our area are flammable gases, flammable liquids, and corrosive materials. So those would be the top hazardous cargoes that we're going to see moving through. Mm. And those would be like the the material we saw um, during that uh, crash on the Brent Spence Bridge during the earlier days of the pandemic when the bridge had to shut down because of an explosive, fiery uh, result there. There was a flammable material in the back of that box truck that uh, did spill out and catch fire, correct? Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned, tell us again, I want to make sure we're all clear, what are the different ways that these materials get uh, transported? We're talking about freight freight trains right now, but there are a lot of different ways hazardous materials move through our community, right? Correct. So we have underground pipelines that have six different uh, hazardous commodities that move through them. We have, uh, we identified 96 different chemicals that move on our highways and roadways. Uh, And then we have uh, even more hazardous cargoes that move by rail. However, as I mentioned, we have identified what the most common ones are. But both our Class 1 railroads, Norfolk Southern and CSX, will uh, share information with us over a given period. And in the most recent case, it was 12 months. We had an exact count of how many cargoes of different hazardous materials move through our county. Mm. And that's great information for us for planning purposes. Yeah, I imagine that helps inform how you update your plans and which first responders would need to be mobilized and all that. Correct. Yeah. So I guess I'm wondering, when you do all this planning, you've got all this information, do you think there's anything in addition that local officials could do to try to prevent something like what happened in East Palestine from from happening here? Or is it more really needing to know how you need to be prepared if it happens? I mean, with all the different federal regulations and, and different entities that control these things, is, is there much prevention that can happen? I think the most important thing for our local jurisdictions, and we have 49 of them in Hamilton County, the most important advice I think we could give them is to make sure you have updated emergency operations plans for your community. 
Um, as a guest earlier on the show said, the federal government mostly regulates railroads. I'm not sure what a local jurisdiction could do other than making sure if something happens, they have a robust emergency operations plan. And that's one thing that our agency works with local jurisdictions to do to make sure that they're ready. And then, of course, their public safety forces. Uh, our agency supports their training efforts. We bring in a lot of grant money. Uh, we've brought in over a quarter million dollars in the last five years and put over 1,700 firefighters, emergency managers, uh, police officers through our hazmat training programs. So I think preparedness and making sure you have up-to-date emergency operations plans would be the best advice. Yeah. And if it, if it came to um, a situation where people would need to be evacuated, like what happened in East Palestine, where are some of the places – does the does the government recommend where folks should go? I mean, what are – or I imagine that depends on where the, the, the problem happens. But, but what are – how does an evacuation like that work? When we tell the public to evacuate, it's important that we always give them a location that they can go to because not everyone's going to know where they can go. And we actually have a full-time person at our agency who is our mass care coordinator, and that is one of her responsibilities is to work with other agencies such as the Salvation Army, the Red Cross, and make sure that in time of emergency that we do have shelter sites identified. We also uh, tell our local jurisdictions that please look at your own community, and if we have the need to shelter people, let's have these sites identified so that we're ready to go and that, you know, when the emergency occurs. Yeah. What's your? I think there's so much um, uh, anxiety right now uh, all over the place. Certainly in East Palestine, but even right. beyond that, about because of what happened. What would be your message to people in terms of? I don't know if there's anything you feel like you could say to keep the people from from panicking. Not just now, but at the time of an emergency. What What's your message to people? I think my number one message would be that here in Hamilton County, we are as prepared as I think we can possibly be. And I, I don't want to imply any complacency there. We know we're prepared, but we also know the challenge of staying prepared and staying current in our skills. And even though a lot of our efforts aren't visible to the public, that there are people working very hard behind the scenes every day to anticipate, to prepare for, to plan for – so, uh, these types of emergencies so that when they do occur, that we will have a very uh, capable response to it and that we already will be able to work with all of the important agencies and organizations that will help us manage it because we work so well with them day to day. Mm. So I think that's my number one message is yeah. there's a lot going on behind the scenes they may not be aware of. And are there things that we as citizens can do to be more prepared? Is it a matter of signing up for these voluntary alerts? What what should all of us be doing to make sure that we're getting the information as quickly as we can if something happens? Well, I would definitely recommend uh, visiting our agency's website at hcready.org, and you'll find a wealth of information on personal preparedness. You'll also find the link to sign up for our countywide alert system, which is alerthc.org. And I think if you uh, make sure that you're ready at home, you have an emergency kit, and you're signed up to get the alerts so that you'll know immediately in time of emergency, I think that those are two very important steps that you can take. Well, this has been very valuable and terrific information. I've been talking with Hamilton County Emergency Management and Homeland Security Agency Local Emergency Planning Committee Coordinator, Doug Whitson. And I have to say, I thought you'd need an extra long card, but you don't. That all fits on a regular size business card. So thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Lucy. 
You've been listening to Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. Our producer is Selena Reeder. Associate producer is Asiya Johnson. Technical director is Derek Smith. Our theme music was composed by Rob Fetters. If you miss our program live, you can subscribe to Cincinnati Edition wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find archives of our program on our website, wvxu.org. I'm Lucy May. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow.